first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Fourth Narrative Extracted from the Journal of Ezra Jennings 1849, June 15th With some interruption from patience and some interruption from pain, I finished my letter to Miss Verinder in time for today's post. I failed to make it as short a letter as I could have wished, but I think I have made it plain. It leaves her entirely mistress of her own decision. If she consents to assist the experiment, she consents of her own free will and not as a favor to Mr. Franklin Blake or to me. June 16th. Rose late after a dreadful night, the vengeance of yesterday's opium pursuing me through a series of frightful dreams. At one time I was whirling through empty space with the phantoms of the dead, friends and enemies together. At another, the one beloved face which I shall never see again rose at my bedside, hideously phosphorescent in the black darkness, and glared and grinned at me. A slight return of the old pain the usual time in the early morning was welcome as a change. It dispelled the visions, and it was bearable because it did that. My bad night made it late in the morning before I could get to Mr. Franklin Blake. I found him stretched on the sofa, breakfasting on brandy and soda water and a dry biscuit. I am beginning as well as you could possibly wish, he said, a miserable, restless night and a total failure of appetite this morning, "'exactly what happened last year when I gave up my cigars. "'The sooner I am ready for my second dose of laudanum, "'the better I shall be pleased.' "'You shall have it on the earliest possible day,' I answered. "'In the meantime, we must be as careful of your health as we can. "'If we allow you to become exhausted, we shall fail in that way. "'You must get an appetite for your dinner. "'In other words, you must get a ride or a walk this morning in the fresh air.' I will ride if they can find me a horse here. By the by, I wrote to Mr. Bruff yesterday. Have you written to Miss Verinder? Yes, by last night's post. Very good. We shall have some news worth hearing to tell each other tomorrow. Don't go yet. I have a word to say to you. You appear to think yesterday that our experiment with the opium was not likely to be viewed very favorably by some of my friends. You were quite right. I call old Gabriel Betteridge one of my friends, and you will be amused to hear that he protested strongly when I saw him yesterday. You have done a wonderful number of foolish things in the course of your life, Mr. Franklin, but this tops them all. There is Betteridge's opinion. You will make allowance for his prejudices, I am sure, if you and he happen to meet. I left Mr. Blake to go to my rounds among my patients, feeling the better and the happier even for the short interview that I had had with him. What is the secret of the attraction that there is for me in this man? Does it only mean that I feel the contrast between the frankly kind manner in which he has allowed me to become acquainted with him and the merciless dislike and distrust with which I am met by other people? 
Or is there really something in him which answers to the yearning that I have for a little human sympathy, the yearning which has survived the solitude and persecution of many years, which seems to grow keener and keener as the time comes nearer and nearer when I shall endure and feel no more? How useless to ask these questions. Mr. Blake has given me a new interest in life. Let that be enough, without seeking to know what the new interest is. June 17th. Before breakfast this morning, Mr. Candy informed me that he was going away for a fortnight on a visit to a friend in the south of England. He gave me as many special directions, poor fellow, about the patients as if he still had the large practice which he possessed before he was taken ill. The practice is worth little enough now. Other doctors have superseded him, and nobody who can help it will employ me. It is perhaps fortunate that he is to be away just at this time. He would have been mortified if I had not informed him of the experiment which I am going to try with Mr. Blake, and I hardly know what undesirable results might not have happened if I had taken him into my confidence. Better as it is, unquestionably better as it is. The post brought me Miss Verinder's answer after Mr. Candy had left the house. A charming letter. It gives me the highest opinion of her. There is no attempt to conceal the interest that she feels in our proceedings. She tells me, in the prettiest manner, that my letter has satisfied her of Mr. Blake's innocence, without the slightest need, so far as she is concerned, of putting my assertion to the proof. She even unbraids herself, most undeservedly, poor thing, for not having divined at the time when the true solution of the mystery might really be. The motive underlying all this proceeds evidently from something more than a generous eagerness to make atonement for a wrong which she has innocently inflicted on another person. It is plain that she has loved him throughout the estrangement between them. In more than one place, the rapture of discovering that he has deserved to be loved breaks its way innocently through the stoutest formalities of pen and ink, and even defies the stronger restraint still of writing to a stranger. Is it possible, I ask myself in reading this delightful letter, that I, of all men in the world, am chosen to be the means of bringing these two young people together again? My own happiness has been trampled underfoot. My own love has been torn from me. Shall I live to see a happiness of others which is of my making, a love renewed which is of my bringing back? O oh, merciful death, let me see it before your arms enfold me, before your voice whispers to me, Rest at last. There are two requests contained in the letter. One of them prevents me from showing it to Mr. Franklin Blake. I am authorized to tell him that Miss Verinder willingly consents to place her house at our disposal and that said, I am desired to add no more. So far, it is easy to comply with her wishes, but the second request embarrasses me seriously. Not content with having written to Mr. Betteridge, instructing him to carry out whatever directions I may have to give, Miss Verinder asks leave to assist me by personally superintending the restoration of her own sitting-room. She only waits a word of reply from me to make the journey to Yorkshire, and to be present as one of the witnesses on the night when the opium is tried for the second time. Here again there is a motive under the surface, and here again, I fancy, 
that I can find it out. What she has forbidden me to tell Mr. Franklin Blake, she is, as I interpret it, eager to tell him with her own lips, before he is to be put to the test which is to vindicate his character in the eyes of other people. I understand and admire this generous anxiety to acquit him without waiting until his innocence may or may not be proved. It is the atonement that she is longing to make, poor girl, after having innocently and inevitably wronged him. But the thing cannot be done. I have no sort of doubt that the agitation which a meeting between them would produce on both sides, reviving dormant feelings, appealing to old memories, awakening new hopes, would, in their effect on the mind of Mr. Blake, be almost certainly fatal to the success of our experiment. It is hard enough, as things are, to reproduce in him the conditions as they existed, or nearly as they existed last year. With new interests and new emotions to agitate him, the attempt would be simply useless. And yet, knowing this, I cannot find it in my heart to disappoint her. I must try, if I can, discover some new arrangement before post-time which will allow me to say yes to Miss Verinder without damage to the service which I have bound myself to render to Mr. Franklin Blake. Two o'clock. I have just returned from my round of medical visits, having begun, of course, by calling at the hotel. Mr. Blake's report of the night is the same as before. He has had some intervals of broken sleep and no more, but he feels it is less today, having slept after yesterday's dinner. This after-dinner sleep is the result, no doubt, of the ride which I advised him to take. I fear I shall have to curtail his restorative exercise in the fresh air. He must not be too well, he must not be too ill. It is a case, as a sailor would say, of very fine steering. He has not yet heard from Mr. Bruff. I found him eager to know if I had received any answer from Miss Verinder. I told him exactly what I was permitted to tell, and no more. It was quite needless to invent excuses for not showing him the letter. He told me, bitterly enough, poor fellow, that he understood the delicacy which disinclined me to produce it. She consents, of course, as a matter of common courtesy and common justice, he said, but she keeps her own opinion of me and waits to see the result. I was sorely tempted to hint that he was now wronging her as she had wronged him. On reflection, I shrank from forestalling her in the double luxury of surprising and forgiving him. My visit was a very short one. After the experience of the other night, I have been compelled once more to give up my dose of opium. As a necessary result, the agony of the disease that is in me has got the upper hand again. I felt the attack coming on and left abruptly so as not to alarm or distress him. It only lasted a quarter of an hour this time, and it left me strength enough to go on with my work. Five o'clock. I have written my reply to Miss Verinder. The arrangement I have proposed reconciles the interests on both sides, if she will only consent to it. After first stating the objections that there are to a meeting between Mr. Blake and herself, before the experiment is tried, I have suggested that she should so time her journey as to arrive at the house privately on the evening when we make the attempt. Traveling by the afternoon train from London, she would delay her arrival until nine o'clock. At that hour... I have undertaken to see Mr. Blake safely into his bedchamber, and so to leave Miss Verinder free to occupy her own rooms until the time comes for administering the laudanum. When that has been done, 
there can be no objection to her watching the result with the rest of us. On the next morning, she shall show Mr. Blake, if she likes, her correspondence with me, and shall satisfy him in that way that he was acquitted in her estimation before the question of his innocence was put to the proof. In that sense, I have written to her. This is all that I can do today. Tomorrow, I must see Mr. Betteridge and give the necessary directions for reopening the house. June 18th. Late again, in calling on Mr. Franklin Blake, more of that horrible pain in the early morning followed this time by complete prostration for some hours. I foresee, in spite of the penalties which it extracts from me, that I shall have to return to the opium for the hundredth time. If I had only myself to think of, I should prefer the sharp pains to the frightful dreams. But the physical suffering exhausts me, If I let myself sink, it may end in my becoming useless to Mr. Blake at the time when he wants me most. It was nearly one o'clock before I could get to the hotel today. The visit, even in my shattered condition, proved to be a most amusing one, thanks entirely to the presence on the scene of Gabriel Betteridge. I found him in the room when I went in. He withdrew to the window and looked out, while I put my first customary question to my patient— Mr. Blake had slept badly again, and he felt the loss of rest this morning more than he had felt it yet. I asked next if he had heard from Mr. Bruff. A letter had reached him that morning. Mr. Bruff expressed the strongest disapproval of the course which his friend and client was taking under my advice. It was mischievous, for it excited hopes that might never be realized. It was quite unintelligible to his mind except that it looked like a piece of trickery, akin to the trickery of mesmerism, clairvoyance, and the like. It unsettled Miss Verinder's house, and it would end in unsettling Miss Verinder herself. He had put the case, without mentioning names, to an eminent physician, and the eminent physician had smiled, had shaken his head, and had said nothing. On these grounds, Mr. Bruff entered his protest and left it there. My next inquiry related to the subject of the diamond. Had the lawyer produced any evidence to prove that the jewel was in London? No, the lawyer had simply declined to discuss the question. He was himself satisfied that the moonstone had been pledged to Mr. Luker. His eminent absent friend, Mr. Murthwaite, whose consummate knowledge of the Indian character no one could deny, was satisfied also. Under these circumstances, and with the many demands already made on him, he must decline entering into any disputes on the subject of evidence. Time would show, and Mr. Bruff was willing to wait for time. It was quite plain, even if Mr. Blake had not made it plainer still by reporting the substance of the letter instead of reading what was actually written, that distrust of me was at the bottom of all this. Having myself foreseen that result... I was neither mortified nor surprised. I asked Mr. Blake if his friend's protest had shaken him. He answered emphatically that it had not produced the slightest effect on his mind. I was free after that to dismiss Mr. Bruff from consideration, and I did dismiss him accordingly. A pause in the talk between us followed, and Gabriel Betteridge came out from his retirement at the window. "'Can you favor me with your attention, sir?' he inquired, addressing himself to me. "'I am quite at your service,' I answered. "'Betteridge took a chair and seated himself at the table. 
he produced a huge old-fashioned leather pocketbook with a pencil of dimensions to match. Having put on his spectacles, he opened the pocketbook at a blank page and addressed himself to me once more. "'I have lived,' said Betteridge, looking at me sternly, "'nigh on fifty years in the service of my late lady. "'I was page-boy before that in the service of the old lord, her father. "'I am now somewhere between seventy and eighty years of age, "'never mind exactly where. "'I am reckoned to have got as pretty a knowledge "'and experience of the world as most men. "'And what does it all end in?' It ends, Mr. Ezra Jennings, in a conjuring trick being performed on Mr. Franklin Blake by a doctor's assistant with a bottle of laudanum, and by the living Jingo I'm appointed in my old age to be a conjurer's boy. Mr. Blake burst out laughing. I attempted to speak. Betteridge held up his hand in token that he had not done yet. Not a word, Mr. Jennings, he said. It don't want a word, sir, from you. I have got my principles, thank God, "'If an order comes to me, which is my own brother, "'to an order come from Bedlam, it don't matter. "'So long as I get it from my master or mistress, "'as the case may be, I obey it. "'I may have my own opinion, "'which is also, you will please to remember, "'the opinion of Mr. Bruff, the great Mr. Bruff,' "'said Betteridge, raising his voice "'and shaking his head at me solemnly. "'It don't matter. "'I withdraw my opinion for all that. "'My young lady says do it, and I say miss,' "'It shall be done. "'Here I am, with my book and my pencil, "'the latter not pointed so well as I could wish. "'But when Christians take leave of their senses, "'who is to expect that pencils will keep their points? "'Give me your orders, Mr. Jennings. "'I'll have them in writing, sir. "'I'm determined not to be behind them "'or before them by so much as a hair's breadth. "'I'm a blind agent, that's what I am, "'a blind agent.' "'repeated Betteridge, with infinite relish "'of his own description of himself. "'I am very sorry,' I began, "'that you and I don't agree. "'Don't bring me into it,' interposed Betteridge. "'This is not a matter of agreement. "'It's a matter of obedience. "'Issue your directions, sir. "'Issue your directions.' "'Mr. Blake made me a sign to take him at his word. "'I issued my directions as plainly "'and as gravely as I could.' "'I wish certain parts of the house to be reopened,' I said, "'and to be furnished exactly as they were furnished at this time last year.' "'Betteridge gave his imperfectly pointed pencil a lick with his tongue. "'Name the parts, Mr. Jennings,' he said loftily. First, the inner hall leading to the chief staircase. First, the inner hall,' Betteridge wrote. "'Impossible to furnish that, sir, as it was furnished last year to begin with.' "'Why?' "'Because there was a stuffed buzzard, Mr. Jennings, in the hall last year. "'When the family left, the buzzard was put away with the other things. "'When the buzzard was put away, he burst. "'We will accept the buzzard, then.' "'Betteridge took a note of the exception. "'The inner hall to be furnished again, as furnished last year, "'a burst buzzard alone accepted. "'Please to go on, Mr. Jennings. "'The carpet to be laid down on the stairs as before.' "'The carpet to be laid down on the stairs as before. "'Sorry to disappoint you, sir, but that can't be done either. "'Why not? "'Because the man who laid that carpet down is dead, Mr. Jennings, "'and the like of him for reconciling together a carpet and a corner "'is not to be found in all England. Look where you may. "'Very well. We must try the next best man in England.' "'Betteridge took another note, and I went on issuing my directions.' 
Miss Verinder's sitting room to be restored exactly to what it was last year, also the corridor leading from the sitting room to the first landing, also the second corridor leading from the second landing to the best bedrooms, also the bedroom occupied last June by Mr. Franklin Blake. Betteridge's blunt pencil followed me conscientiously, word by word. "'Go on, sir,' he said, with sardonic gravity. "'There's a deal of writing left in the point of this pencil yet.' I told him that I had no more directions to give. "'Sir,' said Betteridge, "'in that case, I have a point or two to put on my own behalf.' He opened the pocketbook at a new page and gave the inexhaustible pencil another lick. "'I wish to know,' he began, "'whether I may or may not wash my hands.' "'You may decidedly,' said Mr. Blake. "'I'll ring for the waiter.' "'Of certain responsibilities,' pursued Betteridge, "'impenetrably declining to see anybody in the room but himself and me. "'As to Miss Verinder's sitting-room, to begin with, "'when we took up the carpet last year, Mr. Jennings, "'we found a surprising quantity of pins. "'Am I responsible for putting back the pins?' "'Certainly not.' "'Betteridge made a note of that concession on the spot.' "'As to the first corridor next,' he resumed, "'when we moved the ornaments in that part, "'we moved a statue of a fat naked child, "'profanely described in the catalogue of the house "'as Cupid, God of Love. "'He had two wings last year "'in the fleshy part of his shoulders. "'My eye being off him for the moment, "'he lost one of them. "'Am I responsible for Cupid's wing?' "'I made another concession, "'and Betteridge made another note.' "'As to the second corridor,' he went on, "'there having been nothing in it last year "'but the doors of the rooms to everyone of which I can swear, "'if necessary, my mind is easy, I admit, "'respecting that part of the house only. "'But as to Mr. Franklin's bedroom, "'if that is to be put back to what it was before, "'I want to know who is responsible "'for keeping it in a perpetual state of litter, "'no matter how often it may be set right, "'his trousers here, his towels there, "'and his French novels everywhere.' I say, who is responsible for untidying the tidiness of Mr. Franklin's room, him or me? Mr. Blake declared that he would assume the whole responsibility with the greatest pleasure. Betteridge obstinately declined to listen to any solution of the difficulty without first referring it to my sanction and approval. I accepted Mr. Blake's proposal, and Betteridge made a last entry in the pocketbook to that effect. "'Look in when you like, Mr. Jennings, beginning from tomorrow,' he said, getting on his legs. "'You will find me at work, with the necessary persons to assist me. "'I respectfully beg to thank you, sir, for overlooking the case of the stuffed buzzard "'and the other case of the Cupid's wing, as also for permitting me "'to wash my hands of all responsibility in respect of the pins on the carpet "'and the litter in Mr. Franklin's room. "'Speaking as a servant, I am deeply indebted to you, "'Speaking as a man, I consider you to be a person whose head is full of maggots, "'and I take up my testimony against your experiment as a delusion and a snare. "'Don't be afraid on that account of my feelings as a man "'getting in the way of my duty as a servant. "'You shall be obeyed. "'The maggots, notwithstanding, sir, you shall be obeyed. "'If it ends in your setting the house on fire, "'damn if I send for the engines, "'unless you ring the bell and order them first. With that farewell assurance, he made me a bow and walked out of the room. "'Do you think we can depend on him?' I asked. 
"'Implicitly,' answered Mr. Blake. "'When we go to the house, we shall find nothing neglected "'and nothing forgotten.'" June 19th. Another protest against our contemplated proceedings, from a lady this time. The morning's post brought me two letters, one from Miss Verinder consenting in the kindest manner to the arrangement that I have proposed, the other from the lady under whose care she is living, one Mrs. Meridew. Mrs. Meridew presents her compliments and does not pretend to understand the subject on which I have been corresponding with Miss Verinder in its scientific bearings. Viewed in its social bearings, however, she feels free to pronounce an opinion. I am probably, Mrs. Meridew thinks, not aware that Miss Verinder is barely nineteen years of age. To allow a young lady at her time of life to be present without a chaperone in a house full of men among whom a medical experiment is being carried on is an outrage on propriety which Mrs. Meridew cannot possibly permit. If the matter is allowed to proceed... She will feel it to be her duty, at a serious sacrifice of her own personal convenience, to accompany Miss Verinder to Yorkshire. Under these circumstances, she ventures to request that I will kindly reconsider the subject, seeing that Miss Verinder declines to be guided by any opinion but mine. Her presence cannot possibly be necessary, and a word from me to that effect would relieve both Mrs. Meridew and myself of a very unpleasant responsibility." Translated from polite commonplace into plain English, the meaning of this is, as I take it, that Mrs. Meridew stands in mortal fear of the opinion of the world. She has unfortunately appealed to the very last man in existence who has any reason to regard that opinion with respect. I won't disappoint Miss Verinder, and I won't delay a reconciliation between two young people who love each other and who have been parted too long already. Translated from plain English into polite commonplace, this means that Mr. Jennings presents his compliments to Mrs. Meridew and regrets that he cannot feel justified in interfering any farther in the matter. Mr. Blake's report of himself this morning was the same as before. We determined not to disturb Betteridge by overlooking him at the house today. Tomorrow will be time enough for our first visit of inspection. June 20th. Mr. Blake is beginning to feel his continued restlessness at night. The sooner the rooms are refurnished now, the better. On our way to the house this morning, he consulted me with some nervous impatience and irresolution about a letter forwarded to him from London which he had received from Sergeant Cuff. The sergeant writes from Ireland. He acknowledges the receipt through his housekeeper of a card and message which Mr. Blake left his residence near Dorking and announces his return to England as likely to take place in a week or less. In the meantime, he requests to be favored with Mr. Blake's reasons for wishing to speak to him, as stated in the message, on the subject of the Moonstone. If Mr. Blake can convict him of having made any serious mistake in the course of his last year's inquiry concerning the diamond he will consider it a duty, after the liberal manner in which he was treated by the late Lady Verinder, to place himself at that gentleman's disposal. If not, he begs permission to remain in his retirement, surrounded by the peaceful horticulture attractions of a country life. After reading the letter, I had no hesitation in advising Mr. Blake to inform Sergeant Cuff, in reply, 
of all that had happened since the inquiry was suspended last year, and to leave him to draw his own conclusions from the plain facts. On second thoughts, I also suggested inviting the sergeant to be present at the experiment in the event of his returning to England in time to join us. He would be a valuable witness to have, in any case, and, if I proved to be wrong in believing the diamond to be hidden in Mr. Blake's room, his advice might be of great importance at a future stage of the proceedings over which I could exercise no control. This last consideration appeared to decide Mr. Blake. He promised to follow my advice. The sound of the hammer informed us that the work of refurnishing was in full progress as we entered the drive that led to the house. Betteridge, attired for the occasion in a fisherman's red cap and an apron of green, met us in the outer hall. The moment he saw me, he pulled out the pocketbook and pencil and obstinately insisted on taking notes of everything that I said to him. Look where he might, we found, as Mr. Blake had foretold, that the work was advancing as rapidly and as intelligently as it was possible to desire. But there was still much to be done in the inner hall and in Miss Verinder's room. It seemed doubtful whether the house would be ready for us before the end of the week. Having congratulated Betteridge on the progress that he had made, he persisted in taking notes every time I opened my lips, declining at the same time to pay the slightest attention to anything said by Mr. Blake, and having promised to return for a second visit of inspection in a day or two, we prepared to leave the house, going out by the back way. Before we were clear of the passages downstairs, I was stopped by Betteridge, just as I was passing the door, which led into his own room. "'Could I say two words to you in private?' he asked in a mysterious whisper. I consented, of course. Mr. Blake walked on to wait for me in the garden while I accompanied Betteridge into his room. I fully anticipated a demand for certain new concessions following the precedent already established in the cases of the stuffed buzzard and the cupid's wing. To my great surprise, Betteridge laid his hand confidentially on my arm and put this extraordinary question to me. "'Mr. Jennings, do you happen to be acquainted with Robinson Crusoe?' I answered that I had read Robinson Crusoe when I was a child. "'Not since then?' inquired Betteridge. "'Not since then.' He fell back a few steps and looked at me with an expression of compassionate curiosity, tempered by superstitious awe. "'He has not read Robinson Crusoe since he was a child,' said Betteridge, speaking to himself, not to me. "'Let's try how Robinson Crusoe strikes him now.' He unlocked a cupboard in a corner and produced a dirty and dog's-eared book, which exhaled a strong odor of stale tobacco as he turned over the leaves. Having found a passage of which he was apparently in search, he requested me to join him in the corner, still mysteriously confidential and still speaking under his breath.' "'In respect to this hocus-pocus of yours, sir, "'with the laudanum and Mr. Franklin Blake,' he began, "'while the workpeople are in the house, "'my duty as a servant gets the better of my feelings as a man. "'When the workpeople are gone, "'my feelings as a man get the better of my duty as a servant. "'Very good. "'Last night, Mr. Jennings, "'it was borne in powerfully on my mind "'that this new medical enterprise of yours would end badly.' 
If I have yielded to that secret dictate, I should have put all the furniture away again with my own hand, and have worn the workmen off the premises when they came the next morning. I am glad to find, from what I have seen upstairs, I said, that you resisted the secret dictate. Resisted isn't the word, answered Betteridge. Wrestled is the word. I wrestled, sir, between the silent orders in my bosom, pulling me one way, and the written orders in my pocketbook, pushing me the other, until, saving your presence, I was in a cold sweat. In that dreadful perturbation of mind and laxity of body, to what remedy did I apply? To the remedy, sir, which has never failed me yet for the last thirty years and more. To this book. He hit the book a sounding blow with his open hand and struck out of it a stronger smell of stale tobacco than ever. "'What did I find here?' pursued Betteridge, at the first page I opened. "'This awful bit, sir, page 178, as follows. "'Upon these, and many like reflections, "'I afterwards made it a certain rule with me "'that whenever I found those secret hints "'or pressings of my mind to doing or not doing "'anything that presented, or to going this way or that way, "'I never failed to obey the secret dictate.' As I live by bread, Mr. Jennings, those were the first words that met my eye, exactly at the time when I myself was setting the secret dictate at defiance. You don't see anything at all out of the common in that, do you, sir? I see a coincidence, nothing more. You don't feel at all shaken, Mr. Jennings, in respect to this medical enterprise of yours. Not the least in the world. Betteridge stared hard at me in dead silence. He closed the book with great deliberation. He locked it up again in the cupboard with extraordinary care. He wheeled round and stared hard at me once more. Then he spoke. Sir, he said gravely, there are great allowances to be made for a man who has not read Robinson Crusoe since he was a child. I wish you good morning. He opened his door with a low bow and left me at liberty to find my own way into the garden. I met Mr. Blake returning to the house. "'You needn't tell me what has happened,' he said. "'Betteridge has played his last card. "'He has made another prophetic discovery in Robinson Crusoe. "'Have you humored his favorite delusion? "'No. "'You have let him see that you don't believe in Robinson Crusoe. "'Mr. Jennings, you have fallen to the lowest possible place in Betteridge's estimation. "'Say what you like and do what you like for the future. "'You will find that he won't waste another word on you now.'" June 21st. A short entry must suffice in my journal today. Mr. Blake has had the worst night that he has passed yet. I have been obliged, greatly against my will, to prescribe for him. Men of his sensitive organization are fortunately quick in feeling the effect of remedial measures. Otherwise, I should be inclined to fear that he will be totally unfit for the experiment when the time comes to try it. As for myself, after some little remission of my pains for the last two days... I had an attack this morning, of which I shall say nothing, but that it has decided me to return to the opium. I shall close this book and take my full dose, five hundred drops. June 22nd. Our prospects look better today. Mr. Blake's nervous suffering is greatly allayed. He slept a little last night. My night, thanks to the opium, was the night of a man who was stunned. I can't say that I woke this morning. The fitter expression would be, "'that I recovered my senses. "'We drove to the house to see if the refurnishing was done, 
It will be completed tomorrow, Saturday. As Mr. Blake foretold, Betteridge raised no further obstacles. From first to last, he was ominously polite and ominously silent. My medical enterprise, as Betteridge calls it, must now, inevitably, be delayed until Monday next. Tomorrow evening the workmen will be late in the house. On the next day, the established Sunday, tyranny, which is one of the institutions of this free country, so times the trains as to make it impossible to ask anybody to travel to us from London. Until Monday comes, there is nothing to be done but to watch Mr. Blake carefully and to keep him, if possible, in the same state in which I find him today. In the meanwhile, I have prevailed on him to write to Mr. Bruff, making a point of it that he shall be present as one of the witnesses. I especially chose the lawyer, because he is strongly prejudiced against us. If we convince him, we place our victory beyond the possibility of dispute. Mr. Blake has also written to Sergeant Cuff, and I have sent a line to Miss Verinder. With these, and with old Betteridge, who is really a person of importance in the family, we shall have witnesses enough for the purpose, without including Mrs. Meridue, if Mrs. Meridue persists in sacrificing herself to the opinion of the world. June 23rd. The vengeance of the opium overtook me again last night. No matter. I must go on with it now till Monday has passed and gone. Mr. Blake is not so well again today. At two this morning he confesses that he opened the drawer in which his cigars are put away. He only succeeded in locking it up again by a violent effort. His next proceeding, in case of temptation, was to throw the key out of window. The waiter brought it in this morning, discovered at the bottom of an empty cistern. Such is fate. I have taken possession of the key until Tuesday next. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.